Welcome to episode 33 of the Camerosity Podcast, the world's number one open source film photography podcast. My name is Mike Ekman, and it's another Monday here at Camerosity HQ. Returning from his extended vacation at Planet Commode from Gainesville, Florida, Mr. Anthony Rue. It's been a while since we've talked, Anthony. How are you doing? Doing well. Stockpiling cameras and old film, and I have two more chances to shoot the Artemis launch this coming week, so I'll be driving Canaveral and uh, loading up the Metalist with some infrared film and seeing if I can get a, a launch uh, portrait. Well, fingers crossed it actually goes up this time. From Yellow Springs, Ohio, the home of Antioch College and Ohio's biggest collection of banjos, Mr. Paul Reibolt. How are things going for you on this fine Monday evening, Paul? Swimmingly, knee deep in contacts, cameras right now, and uh, there are no there are no lowest prices on contacts cameras, friends. And finally, from all the way in Sydney, Australia, where winter has finally ended, Mr. Theo Panagopoulos. What has the weather been like for you today, Theo? It's been fantastic. We're already in um, t-shirts and shorts weather, and we're, we're in the first month of spring, so we're quite happy over here. All right. Uh, we've opened up the floodgates this time. We've allowed some people to join us. I see some familiar faces. I see some people who haven't joined us before, so let's start welcoming our guests in. Yay, we finally get Alex in here. All right, Alex is here. Hello, hello. Hello, Alex. All right, I see some people who've never joined the show before. Welcome to the show, uh, Mr. Alex Loikes. Um, uh, it's been a long time coming. I've been uh, on your podcast once before, so now you're on ours. Uh, welcome. Yep. Thank you. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Uh, so my name's Alex Loikes. I've been doing photography since 2002, developing on my own since about 2012. I love experimenting with different cameras, different films, and of course, different developers. Excellent. Yes. Alex has uh, some of the best developer reviews. What I like the best about your reviews is that you actually will, will take a film stock and um, you'll, you'll sh show examples of what you've gotten from particular st film stocks using a variety of different developers and actually where you can see where some are stronger than others. So it's, it's very in-depth and um, you also are a fairly decent photographer too. So looking at test images is a lot nicer when they're actually good pictures too. Yes. All right. Alex Dietrich, uh, looks like we got, you're a first time caller. I don't recall you being on the show before. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Alex, you want to introduce yourself? I was actually on uh, a podcast, I don't know, six or seven ago. Um, but uh, yeah, Alex Dietrich uh, from the Detroit area. Uh, I was intrigued by this week's topic because I uh, just spent a, a weekend uh, developing a couple roles. So uh, always interested to hear what people are doing and alternative process. Awesome. All right. Well, welcome back then, I guess. I'm, I'm terrible at remembering who's been on the show already after 33 episodes. Um, I see Howard Sandler. Howard, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks. I'm something of a camera collector, but I, I, I don't have a lot of diversity when it comes to developers. And I'm yeah. uh, eager to hear about all kinds of alternatives to D76. I pretty Excellent. much stick to one developer most of the time. Great. Uh, Mark Faulkner, welcome back. How are you doing there? Doing well, doing well. Just uh, getting back into the swing of shooting and developing. I swear, every time Mark's on the show, his background is different from the last time we saw it. So he's he looks like he's upstairs in his office versus the basement, but I don't recognize the display behind him. So I, I reckon Mark lives in one of those um, royal castles with, with about 400 rooms, and each one of them has a different camera display. Yeah, I think so. At least in my mind, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, it's been a while, but we're also welcoming back Mr. Robert Shanebrook. Uh, Robert's been on the show a couple of times. We featured you on episode eight, uh, where we talked to you about your book, Making Kodak Film. You came back a second time. Uh, I regret, I don't remember which episode it was, but this is the third time you've been on the show. So Robert has a wealth of knowledge, uh, always interesting guy to talk to. So welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you very much. I, I, I worked developing Kodak films for... 35, designing Kodak films for 30 some years, black and white, color neg, reversal films. If you're listening to this episode now um, and you haven't gone back through the whole back catalog of our episodes, I highly recommend going back to episode eight and listening to that one because not only was it just a really engaging episode, but um, Robert covered a lot of the history of his work there at Kodak, working on cameras that are on the moon. Uh, he explained, which we, we won't cover again, but why things like Kodak Color will never come back. And Kodachrome, sorry, Kodachrome, that's right. Um, so, you know, as kind of alluded here, Alex said it earlier, um, you know, we kind of said we were going to talk more about home developing, which we kind of started last week. We're going to be joined a little bit later by Adam Paul, who um, you guys may remember has been on the show in the past. Adam Paul is my supplier of uh, extinct film stocks. Uh, this guy's got, geez, so many bizarre old film stocks, nitrate films, aerial surveillance films, cinema films. Uh, he'll try anything and he almost always gets images. Um, Adam has attempted and partially succeeded at developing old C-22 film. Uh, the colors are very funky, but maybe if we have an opportunity to ask him about how he was able to do that. But um, I think a good part to start is a bit of an errata, something I said in the last episode that I was I was wrong on. We were had talking about ECN2 uh, developing Kodak cinema film. And, and I had made the comment that, well, we were talking about how the color palette between like C41 and ECN2 is slightly different, but more specifically removing Remjet, I had suggested that there was some chemical or something in ECN2 developers that helps remove the Remjet. And, and I'm told that that's not correct. So I, I don't know if, if Robert, if you have any uh, knowledge of um, Remjet or, you know, cinema films, but like other than the obvious differences in color, you know, light balance, you know, tungsten versus um, daylight or anything like that. Like, is there any like guide or, or, or baseline for what the differences are in the, the, the different ways you could develop like Kodak Vision film? Let's just, let's say, for example. Well, we, we never really paid attention to that. We either developed in C41 or we developed in ECN2. And there were different people working on, on ECN2 or ECN whatever than the people that worked on Coat of Color and Portra and Veracolor. So those communities knew each other. We knew what each other were doing, but we would, we would never have any reason to take uh, Portra and run it through an ECN process, nor would they have any reason to run it through a C41 okay. process? So my experience has been, I mean, you can develop uh, Remjet films in regular C41. You just, you have to worry about not polluting your chemicals. Um, I know sometimes people can say you could use like a coffee filter to filter it before you pour it back in the bottle. I saw you nodding your head, Alex. Um, have you ever dabbled in ECN2 film? Um, yeah, I've developed um, the uh, Vision 3 films, films in a regular um, C41 home kit. And the one advice I have is that Either do all your C41 first and then do your ECN films with the Remjet. 
and then just dispose of the chemistry afterwards. Just don't even try to save the stuff. And honestly, that's what I've done too, is like usually when I'm mixing fresh chemicals, I'll stick to just true C41. And and I, I push color film. I, I like the Unicolor kits the best. Um, they say officially eight rolls, but then, oh, you could do 20. I've pushed it as far as 40 rolls on a single batch of Unicolor. The colors do shift you know, once you get in that second half of that. But when I, when I know I have a bottle or a, a set of bottles, cause I use like um, seltzer water bottles to mix it. And I, I know that when I'm getting towards that end, I, I'll start just mixing in ECN2 in there and not worry too much about it. Kind of like what you said. You know, I, I wish that we had pushed hard to bring Andre in because uh, Cine still has just recently released a home ECN2 kit. It's a bit of a simplified kit, but they have a rather detailed spec sheet on the Cine Still website, and they talk about the fact that you know the, the whole idea of, of ECN, which is just Eastman color negative, is that it was never designed to be printed. They are films that are designed to be optically printed onto uh, positive film for film projection, and they're designed to be very sort of flat or neutral so that they can be color corrected, uh, which is something that happens to every cinema uh, shoot that ever happens. Is, is you're going to go through. After you've shot your negative, you're going to go through a professional color correction. Uh, but they talk about in the in the spec sheet, they talk about how in the actual process, if you have Eastman's uh, cinema division developing your film, that the ECN2 is like a 10-step process that involves chemicals like sulfuric acid. Uh, but there are simplified two- and three-step ECN uh, kits available. I know that, that Eric from... Uh, all through a lens podcast has been selling kits that he has been mixing himself on Etsy. And now we've got the, uh, the, the version done by Sinistil. Um, and you just, you get a slightly different look out of it, you know, because it's, it's meant to be kind of a flat color palette. Now there's some question about the, the stuff that's, you know, trying to home mix, whether or not you're, uh, you're really needing to use like a respirator and have a well ventilated space if you're going to use it. Uh, I know that the Cinestill kit is supposedly more uh, friendly for not releasing noxious gases. Um, so there are pluses and minuses to trying to do ECN at home. I know that uh, Dunwoody Photo up in Atlanta is also doing, uh, under the name of Atlanta Film Company, they're working with Eastman Kodak to sell uh, respooled Vision 3 films and then have arranged through Eastman Kodak uh, to have the films developed there in Atlanta in the film labs uh, so that you can uh, have your, your, your Vision 3 film uh, processed in the same labs that are doing the uh, daily rushes for The Walking Dead or for any of the films that are being shot in the Atlanta region. So there are increasingly going to be options to do true ECN uh, processing that's not cross-processed. Um, gotcha. Now, I have shot... I've, I have... Uh, I think I've got 400 feet of, uh, is it 5219, the 500T, uh, that came yeah, off of a so. film shoot. It's a short, the short end off of a film shoot in New Orleans. And I have shot hundreds and hundreds of frames and I've done about a quarter of them with the, uh, home mixed ECN kit, uh, and then some with the, uh, uh, C41 kit, uh, and just like when developing the, the ECN films with, uh, uh, with the C41, with the ECN kit, at least with, with Eric's kit from all through the lens, um, you have to uh, you just do a pretty vigorous pre-wash 
and you get most of the rim jet off. Uh, now, do you for your pre-wash? Do you use baking soda or just plain water? Both. I've done. I've done both. Okay. I've had good good results with the baking soda. Yeah, me too. Uh, I have. So, so you you just sort of uh, you can actually do it at room temp, uh, vigorous shake for about a minute, then many 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 rinses. Just you know, it's, it's black. It's just carbon black. Right. Uh, when you when you're dumping out the rinse, and then at the end, I just take a microfiber towel and just very gently wipe it off of the microfiber towel after the last rinse. And I've never had a problem with uh, uh, with the rimjet, you know, streaking or causing any problems. So, I mean, the reason we've been having this discussion, you know, because, um, you know, if you think about it, like, boy, it seems geeky using the cinema film with this extra step and having to use a different process. What's the point um, for anybody who hasn't tried it? You know, is, well, stepping back, color film is getting harder and harder to find at an affordable price. Like, you know, Kodak Color Plus has been on back order like forever. You know, Fuji uh, supposedly temporarily, I don't even know if this is true or not, but Kodak is actually producing Fuji 200 right now for them. They say that they're gonna go back to making it themselves. I mean, there's just, you can't find Portra. I, I think I saw uh, the five packs of Portra selling for 70, 80 bucks at some places. Um, so for, for just the casual person who still likes to shoot color, but doesn't want to spend the, the money on what the going rate is for fresh film. Um, th this old Kodak Vision cinema film, like you said, Anthony, you got short ends. You know, when, when they shoot motion picture films, they get these huge thousand or more foot rolls. And when you're, when you're filming in a cinema camera, that motor is just spinning that film through there. And when you get near the end of the roll, the last thing you want to have happen is you don't, don't want to run out of the strip of a film in the middle of a scene. So the camera operator will get to where they're getting kind of close to the end. And as the scene ends, they'll stop and they'll take that end out. And there might be anywhere from 50 to maybe even a couple hundred feet left on that roll. They call these short ends. And a lot of these places will sell them that way. And, and they're, they're, I, I don't want to say they're like cheap, but it's, I think more affordable of an option than getting um, you know, standard color film. So if you're interested in shooting color, but just don't want to spend the prices, this is a good option. And I think for a lot of people, myself, I was the same way. Like when I first got into it, it's like, boy, I, I feel like I just kind of barely understood C41. I don't want to have to learn yet another process, but, um, you know, if you want to use like Alex, uh, Luke said, um, you know, use your C41 kit, uh, do kind of like a pre-wash, get as much of it. You can off, just make it be towards the end of your chemicals. Um, if you're willing to do the extra effort, you can maybe use a coffee filter as you're pouring your chemicals out of your tank back into the bottle to try and filter that stuff out. But um, apart from some slight color shift, you know, you can still get some pretty decent results. And I think I paid, I think I paid $75 for 400 feet. For 400 feet. Yeah. I got, it's, it's been a while, but I got Kodak Vision 50D for, I think they were for a while there, a guy on eBay was selling them a hundred foot rolls for about 50 bucks. So not quite as cheap as yours, but in, in the Atlanta film company film, uh, I, I was just up in Atlanta last week and I bought a couple of rolls up at Dunwoody and they were $10 for 36 exposures. So, so just so some trying to sort of simplify it for people like myself who, who like it very simple, apart from the remjet removal, ECN2 film though is actually aimed at a different chemic set of chemicals to actually process it, but it can be processed in C41 and give you a, a, a result which is slightly color shifted. So, so that's basically exactly. what we're saying here, isn't it? it it's less yeah. color shifted than just a little 
more saturated and a little bit more contrasty. Right. Okay. In case of the D, the daylight balance films, when you shoot them in daylight, they take on what, what I think is a very pleasing, warm palette. You know, uh, oh, look, I, I love using Cinestill 50D, for yeah, instance. And, yeah. But for, from what I'm understanding from this conversation is the 50D, they removed the remjet, so that's all gone. Right. But the actual, the actual film itself technically should have been processed on ECN2, but we're processing it in C41, yep. and that's why it's giving us that warm, yes, uh, warm mm -hmm. color palette. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And as long as you're okay with that, I mean, it's <laughs> it's probably not oh, all that it. different. Yeah. It's like shooting a, a yellow Takamar or something probably would give a, kind of maybe even a similar result. I mean, it's not it's not dramatic. It's not like putting a yellow filter while using color film. I mean, it's just like shoot some autumn foliage with Vision 50D uh and develop in c41 chems and you're gonna get some really awesome looking colors okay so that kind of i think addressed my uh my incorrect information last time um i just know what i've done i, I maybe didn't quite understand exactly what was happening but um uh, i want to shift over since we do have robert here since the last time he was on he spoke um about his own two chemical uh film developer for for kodak tech pan and since then anthony has actually jumped out and started doing this. So uh, maybe Anthony, you want to kind of, you know where I'm going here. You want to set up this one? Yeah, sure. It was uh, the last time that Robert was on, I mentioned that I had stumbled across 150 feet of 1979 Kodak tech pan. And I'd been cycling through a number of different developers trying to find the, uh, uh, the best way to develop it since the, the native developer Technodol is no longer available. And Robert had suggested that I research POTA, which was developed at a, a apparently a nuclear laboratory for developing tech pan for the photography they were doing. Well, I don't and think it, it wasn't. It was developed at the uh, Air Force Base near Utica, New York. It was a it was a bottom. It was a B fifty two base. Okay. Marilyn Levy was the lady's name who did it. I've never met her. But it, it was it was fairly simple to track down the chemicals. It's only a, a two chemical process. Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's dead simple. Uh, it has some some interesting quirks, and uh, in that it's it's a one shot that is uh, apparently oxidizes quickly and wants to be used within an hour of when you mix it. That's <laughs> um, true. But uh, I am getting just absolutely spectacular results out of that tech pan. Uh, oh, good. Always, I'd always been a, a, a diehard Panatomic X fan. And uh, then I had come across this this old cinema film, the 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 five two two zero XT, uh, which was a, a rear projection film, or it was supposed to be a cinematic daylight version of of Panatomic. Uh, but this this tech pan, what I'm getting off of it, I'm just uh, I'm going to be babying that 150 feet because uh, uh, it, it's I'm getting some really special results. Yeah, Poto works good. We modified Poto by putting something in it that kept it from oxidizing. Uh, but there's no reason you just can't mix it, use it, and scrap it. It's about, well, how long are you developing for at 68? Um, I was shooting the tech pan at ISO 50, and I've been developing for 14 minutes. Okay. I think we recommended 15, so that's the same. Yeah. It worked good. You just have to be careful that the development doesn't get away from you because contrast can build rapidly, and it's pretty sensitive to agitation if you... Yeah. We had special instructions that told you to do something like this, try to even out the agitation. If you if you agitate it like you do, say Triax, 
uh, you'll get a lot of development in the middle and not much on the edges. Oh. So yeah, but apparently you've got the technique down. So that's all that matters. And you also need a, a, a good scale because if you're doing it in smaller amounts, uh, on the one on the one developer ingredient, you're only using like 0.75 grams. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you need you need to have a pretty good scale because you're not using much much uh, hydroxymethyl methyl phenidone. Yeah, the phenidone material. But uh, uh, Alex, have you have you ever tried that? I have not tried Cota yet. I I've seen the results you've gotten, Anthony, and um, I do have it on my list, but I do need to find. Um, I, I do have a scale that can do down to, uh, 0.75. I mean, I think the chemicals cost me 12 bucks. Yeah. yeah pretty cheap. It's, it's just a matter of, uh, space yeah. to, uh, keep everything and keep it out of the hands of the little one. But I, I, I've, I've tried a few other films on it. I, I actually tried a little bit of, of, of Panatomic X in it. And, uh, it did not work nearly as well. Uh, the panatomic just kind of fell apart. Yeah, it's a, it's a very different grain structure. Yeah, uh, tech pan is mono dispersed and it's made in a very peculiar way where panatomic X has a range of grain sizes and tech pan has very, very limited range of grain sizes. I also, I also tried some codolith in it, but unfortunately my codolith was stored who knows where in Florida for the last 30 years. And it has uh, like mildew or mold damage across pretty much the entire roll. Yeah. I mean, you can just was that the garbage film you found? That is one of the two garbage films. Yeah, I found it yeah. literally in the garbage. Yeah, somebody somebody <laughs> was throwing out their dark room, and they had just put full, uh, like completely full Watson uh, bulk loading tanks just in, in the trash on the side of the road. Jeez. And uh, <laughs> one was tri one was Triax from 1979, and the other was this Codolith. Uh, from like 73 and uh, nice. it's the yeah who knows it was florida it could have been stored in degrees 120 percent humidity and uh, there's just there's like weird model damage across all of the codolith now when i do get a frame that doesn't have the damage in the pota it actually looks really good it's got a lot of potential uh if the film hadn't have been uh so abused in its past uh i think i'd be really happy with using pota with it but yeah, right now it's kind of a mess. So I'm sorry, I stepped away. Uh, so I don't know if it was mentioned already, but Alex Lakes, um, have you tried Tech um, TechPan with any of these developers at all? Or what's your experience been with it? I've tried TechPan with um, Technodol and uh, Rodinol. Um, TMAX developer, really like it with TMAX developer, does a really good job with it on that one. And um, Rodinol is interesting because it's like, oh, you shoot it at ASA 16, one to 100 for four minutes. <laughs> Very high contrast, but looks really, really nice. So, All right. Um, while we were talking, Adam Paul joined us. Uh, I, I quickly introduced you earlier, Adam, uh, but do you want to say hi to everybody? Sure. I <laughs> just want to say hi. Um, looking forward to seeing what we have to chat about. I have a few little, small, little quick demonstrations to show as well whenever you're awesome. ready. Awesome. All right. And Vanya, Vanya Francesca. How are you doing, Vanya? Hi, I'm good. <laughs> All right, welcome. Uh, most people probably know who you are, but do you want to give a quick intro to yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm Surf Martian on Instagram, and I do All Through a Lens with Eric, uh, right. this other podcast. 
All right. Well, we've been recording for about 20 some minutes and we've already geeked out on ECN2, Kodak Vision, motion picture developing. Uh, and we just talked about um, a two chemical process developed in uh, an Air Force base, I think is what he said for Kodak TechPan. Vanya, have you, have you tried any TechPan? No, I have not. Oh, you're going to love it. <laughs> I'll send you some. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That would be absolutely amazing. Thank you. <laughs> I have TechPan right now, one of the roles Anthony gave me. And uh, since we haven't talked about any gas yet, I'll, I'll be the first gas bringer up for here. But I have this nice Practica, uh, the VLC2. Um, this is, it, it looks like a pretty standard 70s Practica, but this is actually an evolution of the, uh, um, the Pentagon Exacta 1000 RTL, that's very poorly uh, thought out attempt at reviving the Exacta brand. But um, this one has an interchangeable prism, uh, which is rare for a Practica to have. Um, mm -hmm. It still is M42 uh, screw mount, but for anybody who has never seen any of the electronic mount Practicas, it's got these three brass connection points. Um, and if you have the right lens, it has the three connection points there too. So uh, it's, it's a rare attempt at East German um, Pentagon, Pentagon to semi-modernize their, their lineup, which I don't think they sold that well because they're kind of hard to find. Uh, but it, it works like most other East German practicas. It's got the angled front shutter release on it. Usually the lenses are excellent. Uh, so I still have the tech pen in here, but um, you know, Anthony gave me some samples of the POTA. So once I finished that roll, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the results I get from it. So That's great. What, uh, what are you shooting it at? Uh, I'm shooting it at uh, ASA 25. Cool. So I, the reason I chose that is I, my favorite film stock is Panatomic X. Um, I have some F key KB 25 um, that I got from Paul. I believe it was Dan Arnold's. Is that where it came from Paul? Right. Yeah. It was Dan's. And then the tech pan, I figured like that'll kind of like be my three fur at the ASA 25 speed and, and see what I get for it. So uh, fingers crossed that that turns out nice, but um. Adam, so you just stocked the Etsy store, right? Have you had a yeah. lot of sales? Uh, yeah, it's it's definitely um, seems like it was very much missed. So yeah. um, I think within hours, I got like three or four sales and some people who were like, where have you been? So yeah. um, I think as of right now, I've got 36 different film stocks up there now. Now, are you still punching the numbers in the, the leader? Not too often. Because actually I found, I found out that when I would do that, it kind of compress for like, particularly for metal reels, it was very, you pretty okay. much had to snip that part off because it would always kind of make it to the point where you never could get quite that square alignment on the I metal gotcha. reel. And um, I just have nice little nasty words to say uh, sitting in the yeah. back. It, it was a nice touch. Adam tried to, to differentiate himself from some of the other expired film sellers out there. He found these hole punches that had the numbers zero through nine. And if he was doing like, you know, 2235 or something, he would actually punch 2235 into the leader. It looked really cool, but I yeah. could see out, depending on the camera in, my, in the cassette, it might be a loading nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you do a real nice job with your presentation. You do, you reuse commercial cassettes, but you print up mm -hmm. a nice label. Uh, he'll make an attempt to match the color pattern, not pattern, but like the, the color labels he prints on the cassettes will match maybe what that film originally would have been sold as, you know, Agfa films, he'll use like red and white a lot, uh, you know, old Kodak films, sometimes he'd match what the boxes would be 
uh, just to kind of give a, a good look there too. And then you usually advertise your films, like you give recommendations on developing, um, depending on if you use a standard development or a, a cold stand development. Yeah. So yeah. Um, we've talked about this before, and I know that some people don't quite get it, but you you just showed off to me and Mark, Adam, um, I believe it was a Soviet film. Yep. Right. So you, I'm setting you up here. Uh, you oh, yeah. Did, well, I actually have a I have a I'm already ready for your setup. OK. So. All right. So um, what yeah, you was that story? Can one film that I tried and it was really kind of kludgy looking when you develop. And to be fair, I, I used a staining developer for that the first go around, which was Pyrocat. And it gave a very dark base um, when I went back and try to do the opposite by using what I call cold stand. Um, it, basically came out looking like it was pristine. Um, so I, I've just recently done sort of some testing on some Ansco super high pan. Well, real, real quick, can you explain what cold stand means? I, I'm more than glad to, I'm gonna do that right now. <laughs> Sorry. So typically you've got a stand development process that a lot of people use at room temperature. And for me, I kind of have sort of settled upon one to 75 for my ratio of HC 110. And I usually do a 30 minute cold stand. I mean, a 30 minute stand development. Sometimes with older films that have not, have not exactly been taken too well, well care of over decades, you wind up getting a dark base even with the benzo that's in there. So I tried doing something a little bit different and using water directly from the refrigerator, which is about 36 to 40 degrees and keeping the tank in, in the refrigerator for 30 minutes using three agitations at every 10 minute intervals, very gentle agitation to try to prevent bromide, bromide drag. And to sort of give you an example, um, there we go. So the, the top strip right here was developed in room temperature HC 110. This is the exact same film shot in the exact same camera. I basically took the, the strip and cut it in half. And then the strip right here is done in cold stand developing which is refrigerated HC 110 for 30 minutes, the exact same time, the exact same uh, ratio, one to 75, but the cold temperatures do an awful lot to help limit the fog. So we'll, we'll get a picture of this um, for people listening later, but what, what I'll describe what he's holding up. He's got, what is that, an LED light panel? Yep. Right? So he's got an LED light panel with two strips of film going horizontally. The top strip from just through the Zoom call looks completely black, but I, I think you can make out a little bit of an image, right, Adam? True. So there is an image. You might be able to salvage it with a good scan, but um, showing the bottom strip there, I mean, I can clearly, even through the Zoom call, make out the frame. The base looks several shades lighter. Uh, it almost looks to me, naked eye, about what I get from Kodak Plus X, which is very mm -hmm. scannable. So the only difference, this is what, a Smena film? This right here is Ansco Super oh, Ansco. High Pan. Okay, so Super High Pan. A high-speed Ansco emulsion, and it dates from about 1965. Okay, so 1965 black and white Ansco film. The only difference is the, the method and how he yeah. developed, and we, we could see a significant difference in the, the shade of the base, so that when you scan that, you're going to get a heck of a lot more shadow detail. Exactly. Okay. And then how cold the water you, I know you said it. I usually just run it straight from the refrigerator. It's typically in the range of 35 to 40 degrees. It, okay. I'm not hugely scientific about it. I'm not pushing a thermometer in there to try and get down to a specific temperature. 
The one thing I do try to do is much more gentle agitation because when you, for, it seems like when you do it cold, the viscosity is a little bit um, less. So it does tend to make it a bit more prone to bromide, bromide drag. So if you just sort of give it a gentle kind of a nudge rotation-wise through your agitation, it helps to counter that. And, and bromide drag is that effect you sometimes see where you can see lines coming from where the sprocket holes are. Yep. And you'll notice that there is basically no real evidence of it that I can see yeah. here. So Vanya, I saw you nodding your head. I assume you've run into that before. Oh my gosh. Yes. All the time. Uh, <laughs> the, I am not a good agitator, I guess. And I, I seem to under agitate. So I get it a lot, especially with the expired films. Um, the Tasma McRat 300 and 200 speed, which I think I'm usually shooting about six ISO or maybe 10, depending. Uh, that seems to get get the drag if especially if i'm doing like a, a long stand development or something mm -hmm. um usually when i say stand develop it's gonna be uh an hour and i will agitate once in the middle and maybe doing less of a stand and maybe just doing what um he was talking about kind of like swishing it around uh every 10 minutes might actually be a better choice honestly <laughs> yeah it seems like it's very it's sort of I've done many roles like this, and this has sort of seemed like it's been the sweet spot for me to sort of give it enough agitation that it kind of doesn't cause the things to settle, but not so much that, you know, you cause uh, the fluid marks that you get there. And that's yeah. HC 110 at 171 to 75 for 30? Yes. This is actually the Legacy Pro L110 equivalent, which was all what B&H will ship right now. So it actually has, has really proven itself to be very much equivalent to um, the Kodak product. Is it truly the same thing or is it just like they guessed? I believe so. It seems to have the same kind of a, I, it doesn't really list the ingredients, but it seems as though it has a, a fog inhibitor, like a benzo type um, fog inhibitor, because everything that I've seen, is it, it's responding par for par with HC110. Yep. That's what I found also. It's a nice little bonus. So that's something to find that you can at least get shipped when you need it. Uh, I've never actually used uh, Kodak's HC110. I only use Legacy Pro. Just putting it out there. I've never had an issue with it. It works just the same. I use it with Ansel method, everything. And uh, it's a little cheaper. It seems like it's the same exact thing. I have a question for Robert. I don't know if, if you'd even know this, but um, I, when I first got into film developing and, and from my research, I had assumed that HC110 was a, a newer developer, maybe developed in the last 10 to 20 years, but that's not true. Uh, it seems to date back to maybe late 60s, early 70s. Is that about right? I think it's earlier than that. I think it's um, 62, 63 okay. timeframe. So my, my question is, um, when I was doing, okay, Paul's holding up the Kodak reference manual. Does that mention? Dated 1940. But HC110's not in there. Not in it. But if you do need, if anyone needs a, 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 the formula for D61, D82, <laughs> uh, DK60A, I can certainly supply you with that. <laughs> if you're looking for times and temperatures to develop your super pancro press type B, uh, <laughs> I have that too. But does it mention cold stand? <laughs> it doesn't mention cold no. stand. I, I think that's a hipster thing, you know, and there weren't a lot of hipsters in 1940s, so. Well, Adam yeah. does have a pretty cool beard, so maybe... Uh... <laughs> the hipsters were the authorities. They were doing it before any, any of it was cool. 
See, I, I'm a curmudgeon. I get in a lot of trouble with these guys because I keep saying, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to do that? Do you know about reticulation? Do you know about emulsion swelling? And so it appears that while I was asleep, the emulsion stopped swelling on films when uh, I guess not. When it sat in liquid for too long. So, so my, my question for Robert, though, was HC110 is not a new developer, but when I was doing my Kepler's Vault series, at one point I wanted to like do a little bit of research on contemporary articles about the classic films and the classic developers and you you could find stuff on d76 you can find tons of stuff on rod and all but i like i went back through like pop photo modern photography all the resources i could find and it seemed like almost nobody talked about hc 110 back then like it, it almost as if it was like a second rate developer that nobody really used but like now today it's super popular so was there like was there um I, I don't know, like, what was the opinion of HC-110 back when it first came out? Like, Well, HC-110 was primarily designed initially for graphic arts films, uh, separation negative film and, and those sorts of films. And that's what it was used for. Uh, it was concentrated. There's a, there's a lot of stuff in it. I, I, I don't believe it was designed in what I would call a, like, well, for a T-Max developer, we, we designed that using... Uh, linear regressions and, and various other things to actually know what was going on. I think HC-110 was developed in the time where you threw in a little of this and a little of that and you developed your films and you kind of got what you got. It, it was the hipsters then in the graphic arts studios doing it then, right? Well, it's graphic arts. It's, it's printing. It's the, well, printing. The, the, commercial, the commercial studios that a lot of commercial studios back then that were doing black and white had their own labs. They were doing dip and dunks with nitrogen burst agitation and, uh, you know, Kodak stainless steel film hangers. Right. And, and they were using HC-110 because they could buy, you know, uh, buy it in bottles and, and mix the quantity. Because a lot of those tanks were, were two and a half gallon tanks. Three and a half. Three and a half gallon tanks. So you had to have, you know, a certain, you had to have a lot of chemistry to fill up a tank. The development time was a little short for HC-110, like um, dilution B, it would be kind of short. So you might go to dilution D or something like that so that your development time wouldn't be so short. Because if you're using nitrogen burst or if you're doing racks where you're going like this, where short times are hard to get pretty good, to get really good uniformity. But it, it, it grew out of the, the graphic side of the business and it was found that could work well with films of the 60s like Super Panko Press Type B and Royal Pan and let's see what else was there. Ectopan. Ectopan was always my favorite. Ectopan was a little later. That came out in the 70s. That was in the 70s. Ectopan had the same speed as VPS, as Ectocol, let's see, CPS. 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 Had the same speed as CPS, which you can date it. It was a C. 22 film and the ectopan was to be so if you're doing catalog work you could shoot color nag and you could shoot a black and white and not have to change the settings so that that was made for that we got there there's a cps cps was the an early 60s uh color color negative film used primarily for weddings there's two flavors there was cps and cpl CPL was made for exposures longer than 10 seconds. CPS was 
made essentially for exposure electronic flash and 125th of a second and that sort of stuff. Those were early, you know, that was replaced by Vericolor, then Vericolor 2, then Vericolor 3, then Portra. Each one was a little better than its predecessor, which was kind of the objective. The, the goal is to continuous improvement. You just get one out, you get it going, then you start working on the next one. We talked about tricks with black and white film and how to get more out of expired black and white stocks. But, you know, Adam just showed that CPS there. That looks like an old color film. Like what kind of tricks, what options do you have for extending the, the usefulness of color films? Well, one thing I do is um, using some of the ECN2 kits that you get all online. I've kind of worked out a bit of a stand. It, it's not the greatest thing in the world, but it gets you an image where previously I never got an image. So this is an E4 film on the bottom, which you're getting a bit of a faint image, but it does come out in color. Okay. So this is using ECN2 chemistry. And I use this process or this quote process on E4 films, um, EC, ECN1 films, I have one in, in stock. And then I also have some old C22 stocks. And so that's basically is sort of a stand development, which is um, about 20 to 25 minutes at room temperature in uh, ECN2 chemistry, followed by about four minutes of ECN2 bleach. The bleach right. I've found is the key to sort of right. getting it right, because that bleach actually does lighten the film base, whereas a C41 Blix doesn't do anything for it. And that's been my experience too. Every attempt I've ever tried even online where people claim you can do C C22 and like black and white developers, I never get anything. It just, it's black or brown, mm -hmm. but the, so it's the bleach from the ECN2 kit. Marasinide bleach apparently right. is the key. Because Blix is bleach and fix are already mixed together, mm -hmm. but with the ECN kits, those are separate ingredients still. So we can see Adam's holding up his light board again. I, I can see faint images. I imagine on a scanner that comes out a bit, a bit better. Yeah, you can use like options like the restore. You know, if you have a restore colors for faded film. Um, it does definitely. It's. I mean, generally, what this is cross processed, by the way, so it's developing as a negative. I've yet to try to figure out how to try to reverse engineer like an E4 film for a, a positive image. But you know, so I sort of just tend to do the cross process to get a negative. I have a question about how, since you're doing it at room temperature with ECN2, mm -hmm. how long is your developing time? My developing time is usually um, about 23 minutes. So okay. I use about 23 minutes in the, in the developer, do a thorough rinse and, and, and flush, and then do about four to five minutes, use about 4.30, I think, in the, in the bleach. And then just, you, you know, another rinse, stop, and uh, fix. Um, some of the older films don't have hardeners. So you have to be, for one, they, they definitely want, they're definitely designed to be developed at, at more of a much lower temperature, like a room temperature type of, um, they oftentimes when you pull them out of the tank, you don't necessarily see quite as much image as you do on the example that I give, it, it looks a bit more cloudy, but that's because the, the emulsion is still soft. You can use a, a, a hardener, but I just typically just hang dry it and basically the emulsion basically just dries as, as it goes. When you're doing the E4 stuff, you know, the, the, the reason, if you want to try to change it to a positive, have you tried using any kind of reversal bath? I'm going to try that at some point. I, 
E4 was the first was the first process that could, I think it was the first one that was used a chemical reversal because mm -hmm. with E3 you had to re-expose the film to uh, you know, a 250 watt bulb at a distance of six inches for 30 seconds or something. And if you were really lucky, you didn't spray water over the 250 watt bulb and have an explosion. But the E4 was, since it was a chemical reversal, it was, it was a lot easier to do. If you can figure out what that formula is. Well, it's stannous chloride. Is, is it really, that's what it is? Yeah. Okay. That's my recollection. This is the nerdiest podcast I think I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Great info. Right, so, I'm, I'm Alex, Luke, I'm, I'm on your website, and you just recently posted um, a pretty good review of uh, Plus X Aricon 2. Yes. This looks like a nice surveillance film, which I'm looking at your images, and I don't know how much post-processing you did, but these look fantastic. Um, actually, not a lot. I, wow. I don't really do a lot of post-processing. I just, I adjust levels and curves until I like, yep, that's where I want it. And I just sort of set that preset and I apply it to the rest of the images. So you used uh, Adox XT3, you used Rodinol, and you use uh, Ilf Ilford Ilfotech HC. Um, and ID11 oh, as well. And ID11. Okay. So yep. I don't want to repeat everything on the site here, but I mean, do you have a favorite one of those? Um, if I had a favorite one, it would probably be um, ID11 and Adox XT3. Okay. Um, the one thing I do recommend with the XT3 is um, shooting the film at 80 instead of 100. I got a roll of um, washi. Um, Washi K, which is a similar film stock to the Aricon 2. Okay. So I repeated the process and got much better results. And when you got this film, do you know the condition of it? I mean, was it refrigerated? Um, the condition was very good. I got it from uh, Lance um, Rostein through his uh, laboratoire okay. website. And um, so I've, I've got film from him before. So I trust that he's run it through tests and keeps it well refrigerated. He wouldn't sell garbage. So, so I have a maybe a bit of a provocative question. So if I'm uh, pretty much restricting myself to fresh film for the most part and ma mainstream films, uh, Ilford Delta, uh, Kodak Tri-X, um, not, uh, not TechPan or more exotic films, am I missing out on much if I just put it all through D76, mostly at, and I shoot it mostly at box speed, sometimes one stop over, one stop under. No, D76 will get you pretty much baseline. Yeah. So almost every film I review, um, I use three standard developers, um, D76, HC110, and Rodinol. And then I usually pick something a little more exotic. So again, XTAL, XT3, um, FX39-2, Microfin, Perceptol, whatever I have open and mixed. But D76 always will give a good baseline. It'll always give good results. It's cheap, it's cheerful, and you can get it. Um, Kodak, Ilford, um, tons of clone ones. So in Canada, there's Flick Film. They have uh, their MQ Classic developer, again, D76 clone. Clone FPP has one, Legacy Pro has one. You can mix it yourself if you want to. Thank you. No, I, I'm with Howard. I, I use, uh, I mean, I'm TMAX 100, 400, Tri-X, and uh, HC 110. Uh, you know, 
the, only, the only thing I've been considering was I've, I found a role, Robert, you can maybe help me with this. I found a role of H&W Control. Okay. Do you remember that? There wasn't that what, a Kodak photo microfilm. It was related to it. And by the way, I, I, don't, I, I don't know if H&W is still in business. H&W and, H and was a garage in downtown Rochester behind the art gallery. All it was is a garage with an overhead door. And they ran that business like that for 30 years. That's amazing. That I sold a lot of that film. Did, have any of you guys shot H&W Control? Twice. Okay, so you're, it's the clearest base you've ever seen. Yeah, the base star, is completely Non-gray base, that's there. So you have to worry a little bit about light piping. But it's kind of neat stuff. It had zero grain. The grain was just yeah, it's very, very, very fine mono dispersed grain. It's a, essentially a photomicrography film. It's kind of the predecessor to tech pan. And it, it always, I always thought it was fun because my my feeling always was that grain could create sharpness when it you had good, when you had distinct grain. You had the you had the impression that an image was was sharp. Yeah. And when you had mushy grain, the image wasn't sharp. But uh, this great this film had basically no grain, but the images were very, very, very crisp. The speed was single digit. Yes, I think it was eight. Nice. Uh, so you know, it was a small thermonuclear explosion to have enough light to yeah. get any depth to deal with it. But uh, it was uh, it was a fun film. I, I've got one roll of thirty six left. If I can figure out what to develop it in, I might try it. Have you guys ever come across something called high definition aerial film, 3404 or 3414? Adam just leaned over. He probably has <laughs> no, a box. 3401. Of that. <laughs> no, that's an, yeah, that's not it. This, the What's set, the expiration date on that, Adam? 3401. That's what the, I've got. The, for the set, I, I worked in the satellite business for a while. And we made a film for satellites that was very, very, very slow, single digits. And that was what flew in the satellites. And the film was very fine grain. And somewhere I have a 60X enlargement from 3404, and it's just starting to show the grain. Very, very fine grain, very special film. Sometimes it'll show up. I would think it would show up on uh, eBay or someplace. We, we made it in huge quantities. By, by huge quantities, one of the satellites called Hexagon carried two rolls of film. Each roll was 30 miles long. <laughs> Think don't, about don't it. shoot half frame with that. Don't put is, uh, <laughs> is cosmic ray fogging a factor when, when these things go in satellites for a few months? They go for several months. You have to be careful. It's not really an issue, but you have to you have to know what you're doing. You have to monitor that so that you don't get cosmic. Stuff comes down. That would really, if you're looking for fine grain, if you ever see any of that, that that will rival Tech Pan, and it'll be a lot easier to develop. Are there any satellites that could come down that we could scout that we could <laughs> no, salvage, salvage the film? The film. The, the film Film return satellites stopped flying in the late 80s. I have to imagine, Robert, film, like aerial film, so probably the, some thought had to go into radiation or, you know, being way up in there and, and allowing the film to survive. Um, sure. So is that, like, Alex just reviewed an aerial film from the 60s that, that shot great. So is there, 
is it plausible that there is you may get a longer shelf life out of old aerial films for that reason? And that's why we're still getting great results today. You're assuming we have some control over that. That may not be a good <laughs> assumption. That's true. The way you the way you work on it is you don't leave, you don't leave it in harm's way. Yeah, no, I understand. Like some films have, we have seen my favorite film. I'm going to stop talking about it because I can't find it anymore. But my favorite film is Time Traveler film. And it, it, you could shoot it at box, box speed today and it still comes out great. Adam and I both have this weird Belgian film called Supertone. Uh, we got a huge lot of it a couple of years ago in 127. This stuff shoots at box speed with no okay. degradation whatsoever. Uh, yet other films like uh, Anthony, you were just talking about how disappointed you were in some expired triacs. Yes. Right. Certain films just hold up better than others. And obviously, how old was the triax? 1987. Yeah, I'm very surprised at that. Yeah, I've had three different bulk rolls of, of late 80s triax, and all of it is falling apart. I'm not getting. Might have been. Getting, some, well, how was it kept? You know, who knows? Oh, OK, mystery film. That's that's a, a big part of it, too. But um, I don't know. But yeah, so so the satellite film, the 30 mile long roll of satellite film, if when Adam gets some, he'll he'll definitely let us know. But um, I, I actually have some. I need to test it. Some. this is thirty four fourteen. Really? It's, yep. it's, it's a, there you go. High definition aerial film. Forty three fourteen. He's got it's it. Actually uh, cut exactly to one twenty width. So seven, it's 70. That's well, that's that's not is it. 120 is it 70 millimeters wide or is it 62 it's, millimeters? It's actually 61 millimeters wide, so it's uh, 120 width. It's 61 and a nice. half. Nice. 61 yeah. and a half, I bet if you measure it. Yeah, something at 2.423 inches. So yeah, I can't do the math. <laughs> yeah, but try that. That that's a very unusual film. Uh, you can process. Let's see, when when it's used for aerial, they want high contrast. Mm -hmm. So they'll they'll use a developer called Versamat 881 mm -hmm. as I recall no Versamat 885 and the, that will give you a gamma of about 1.2 but you can process it to a lower gamma and so you know just just not that anybody would think I'm exaggerating here but I mean Adam has like every film ever made I'm pretty Sounds sure like <laughs> it. he's got he, like he's even sold uh paper that development paper that's double perforated, mm -hmm. right? I've gotten three different stocks of that so far. So it literally looks like 35 millimeter film, but it's photographic paper that develops an image mm -hmm. on it. Yeah. Um, so you, so you can't scan it. You have to take a photo of it, but kind of neat. I mean, he sent me the Soviet film that was yellow. Yeah. You know, super oh, yellow film. Setting shot that before. You shot yellow film before. Yeah. He's found pink film. I think you found green film. Oh, yeah. Always bizarre. Green. Yeah. Uh, but real quick, I want to acknowledge while we were talking, we had a few people jump in. Uh, Miles Lieback came back. How are you doing, Miles? I'm doing well. Good to see everyone. Great. Um, Andrew Smith is back. Andrew's been on the show before. Uh, Mike Litwin, I'm really sorry, but I, I think you're a first time caller. I've yeah, already admitted. Okay, yeah. awesome. Where are, you, where are you calling from, Mike? Uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. All right, we got another Canadian on here. Okay, all right. So Howard doesn't feel alone, and Alex. Um, so we've been talking about expired film stocks here. We've talked about a bunch of different things already. Adam has has risen to the challenge of having pretty much every film we've come up with. But I, I wanted to ask, though, to kind of bring this back down a little bit to someone who's maybe never ventured any of these films before. Uh, let's say you do have somebody who is interested in trying 
you know, older stocks, like maybe not always Adam, but Alex or somebody, do you want to make a recommendation on what is a safe expired film to shoot that still behaves like a fresh film might that if for someone who just wants to say they've shot something old before? Oh, um, Kodak plus X is always a safe bet. Um, Panatomic X, if you're into, uh, the slow stuff that plus it has a pretty cool name. Um, the slower the film, the better it is. Um, 35 millimeter is always safer than 120. And why is that? Um, backing paper. Yeah, I, I, I tell that to people all the time. It's there's it's a two problems with backing paper is that the paper has a tendency to absorb and hold moisture. So mm-hmm. there's a, a greater chance of mildew and mold just developing behind the film. Um, yep. I've seen that happen with VPAN a lot. Like the film itself is okay. It's held up well, but you get splotches on it. And that's almost yep. always VPAN. And then you have to take never care of the tape. Experience, never experienced that with Veracrome Pan. Okay. Um, the original Svema films, like the original ones, I've always encountered that with that. Or um, the original Orwell films. So yeah, really I, anything from the Eastern Bloc. I don't think that the Eastern Bloc understood acid-free paper. <laughs> yeah, either that or Chernobyl you know, because a whole bunch uh, of problems. I've had some Orvo film that, uh, I mean, you could just, it just felt like, like construction paper. Mm. Uh, It was like, as it's aged, it was just like fibrous and you get all sorts of weird issues with the film and you go to develop it. Yeah. Alex, when you, when you shoot expired black and white film, that's been just stored in a drawer somewhere, is that uh, one stop per decade uh, of expiry valid? Or I've, I've heard other people say you don't really have to worry about that. Depends on how I feel. <laughs> some days I feel lucky, some days I don't. All depends on the light and how I'm feeling. I, I, I don't shoot a lot of expired film, but I did, I did get a few roles. Uh, 2007 uh, Ilford Pan F. Oh, and I shot it fresh. with one extra yeah. stop, and it seemed to be pretty good. My, my yeah. take is that color film, high-speed color film, has more issues over time. So if I've mm. got like a 1980s yeah. color film, you know, I might give it a stop or two. Uh, definitely not a stop per decade, though. And black and white film, I'm almost always just shooting at box speed, uh, and I shoot a lot of expired film. I um, always start at box speed when I shoot. Now, sometimes you do need to give it more. But that's always where I start when it's an, a, a type of film that I'm not familiar with. It, it kind of maybe depends on which film as well. Because I, right. I know I saw on one of the forums um, the other day, someone was picking up some Press 800. And it's it's one of my favorite films that I, I've um, I've got a bit of a stock of. And I shoot it at 500 rather than ISO Is that 800. Fu- the Fuji? Yeah, the Fuji. Yeah. And um, the the brilliance of that is it it's designed to take that slight overexposure as well so you're actually in quite safe territory shooting it at 500 anyway so uh i, I think it really starts to depend on which film you're talking with very chrome pan for instance that was mentioned earlier i shoot it almost at box speed and that just works i think it just works every single time i did a bracket test once of pan x i bracketed it from like iso 6 to iso 100 using the exact same camera just i kept changing the speed and the differences were so negligible. Like it almost looked like the same image over and over again. It's just amazing at how much latitude some of those films have. Oh, yeah. Try it. Well, I'll, I'll comment on your comment. Tri- Tri-X will have an incredibly long latitude. You can shoot it yeah. from 
fifty to sixteen hundred when you when when you print it, you still get good results. Yeah. The high speed color the high speed color films will get grainy with as they age. Grain will increase due to cosmic primarily due to cosmic radiation. And there's not a hell of a lot you can do about that. It'll just it'll just build up and that that, that becomes the limiting factor on the date. The other comment I'll make is from a manufacturer's point of view, we might look at film one year after expiration, but after that, we don't really have any, we would never have any interest in looking at that. What we might do is to incubate film at a, at a say 100 degrees F, uh, 60% RH without any external packaging and see how that degraded the emulsion. We would hope that we would get no, virt virtually no change over that period of time. But we, you know, the manufacturers aren't gonna, aren't gonna look at anything much more in a year. And they're only no. gonna do that to get a signal to see if there have any uh, problems with fresh film that might show a difference. They're not gonna, you know, man, Kodak or anybody else isn't gonna pay much attention after it after a year, particularly at recommended keeping. One film I've seen that doesn't age well, interesting enough, is Ektar 25. Yeah, I, I've shot two rolls of that, and you're right, it came up, it was horrible. Yep. It's just not a very good, it's, it's just <laughs> not very good. It's not a very, remember, there's two flavors of Ektar 25. There's a 1980-ish flavor, and then it came back in the late 90s, I think. But it's not a, remember the objective there was image quality, fine grain, high sharpness. They weren't particularly interested in sensitometric quality. So they did some, everything was done to improve the image quality, not necessarily get stable sensitometry. Um, going back to something Alex had said about with 120 with the backing paper, um, two thoughts on that. Another one that I found too, is you always have to be cognizant of the tape. Uh, a lot of times older roll films, the tape will get brittle and actually yep. can separate. So um, if you do have an old roll of 120 uh, or even 127 and you want to try and shoot it, you definitely want to take it into a dark bathroom or a film changing bag or somewhere in darkness, start to unravel it with your fingers. You want to feel for about where the film starts and there will be a piece of like, it's usually like, like a, like a paper based, like almost like a, like a masking tape kind of and feel and make sure that it's actually still holding the film on. Uh, and a lot of times it's not, or it's very, very brittle. And what I do is I just tape right over it. I don't attempt to remove it. I'll get a piece of, I use electrical tape actually. Um, Cause it's soft and very pliable. And I just tape right over it so that you could make sure that the, um, the film and the paper stay together. But then that, that makes me think though, if, if roll film, the biggest challenge is the paper sandwich between the film, what about 220? Uh, Alex, have you ever tried any like old expired 220 rolls? I mean, that would eliminate that problem, right? I have never shot 220, period, full stop. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll comment on 220. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll separate. You, we put so much effort into 220 tape, you wouldn't believe it. So you mean two, where, where it butts at, it butts to the film is where it separates? Yeah. Okay. Remember all, and, and, and remember 120 and 220 are very different. 120, you're dragging, you're dragging the film with the paper, right? You, you, got, you got the tape, you got the tape on the film 
taped to the paper and you're dragging the paper and the film's getting totaled along. In 220, you're putting all the stress on that tape. Oh, let me get all the too. stress is on the tape. So we spent a lot of effort in designing that tape and making sure it would remain intact through the life of the film, almost independent of storage conditions. We only tested for uh, you know, room, room temperature for a couple of years, 36 months. So if you've got a roll of 220 from the 90s, I'd, I'd be pretty careful because <laughs> you, you'll, you'll start winding it and all you're going to get is paper backing. You're going to get packing paper. Backing paper is a very sophisticated material. Your comment on the Eastern Europeans is, is right. Uh, it's really, it, there's a lot of technology in a good backing paper. My only anecdote about uh, 220, I, I did get, uh, several bricks of, uh, I think it was uh, Agfa, I want to say it was called Vista 400 or something, yeah, kind of like uh, yep. 10 years expired. And uh, I shot it in 120 backs on uh, my uh, my Bronica camera and my uh, Connie Omega camera. It went through the camera, it was fine. Uh, the only thing is if you have a camera that has any degree of light leaks, that they may not show up with 120 film because the paper is in the way uh, if the leak is, you know, on in the, the right, you know, the hinge or something, but they'll sure show up on 220 film. <laughs> so uh, I, I found out that my, uh, my Connie Omega was not really very dark inside uh, uh, when not used with 120 film. And the, the Bronica also had Basically, after the first couple of rolls, I just taped the whole thing up with electrical tape on the outside every time I loaded a roll of 220. I'll make a comment on, on early 120 backing paper. There was a pro, there was a process prior prior to my time, so prior to 80. It was called skiving, and for 120 on the edge of the backing paper, they ran a grinding wheel along the edge to grind to look to lower the profile of the paper so that if you came in from the edge, the paper would get, would be very thin on the edge so it would be pliable and therefore it would block some of the light out because it, it would be very flexible. And they grind maybe uh, half an inch and it would go, I don't remember the thickness of backing paper. It would go from a, maybe the half, a half a thickness of backing paper to the full thickness and they grind that away and they it was called skiving and then they vacuumed that at the same time when they were putting the pasters the before exposure and after exposure pasters on a roll of 120 that would all be one operation there's these little grinding wheels and at the same time they put the backing the uh, pasters we called before paster and after paster and they stopped doing this at some point then yeah, we found we didn't have to do it. Uh, let's see, I might be able to figure this out. I made several changes in backing paper. Lucky me. Um, <laughs> I think the first, I, I try to remember the year, late 80s, early 90s, we made several changes. One was we used a soft, if you, for Paul, Paul remembers when the backing paper was kind of smeared, remember? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that, Paul? Yep, I do. Because the overcoat that was used over the ink would dissolve the ink a little bit. It was a solvent. 
that solvent would go on the backing paper. And if people look at backing papers from the 60s all the way through the 70s, you'll, you'll notice to a varying degree that the printing that said Veracrome pan or whatever was smeared. I've noticed that. It's almost like it's bleeding into the paper kind of. Yeah, because the solvent that was put, there was an overcoat that put on, was put on that dissolved the ink. That's interesting. It caused the smear. It was unsightly, but nobody seemed to care, I guess. Well, nobody, nobody looked at backing. Nobody paper. saw it. Except, no. Except, you, except you, the guy you, hanging rolls in the photo finishers. They didn't, the they didn't have nerdy podcasts back then. No, you take off the paper, you throw it in the trash, you develop yeah, the nobody, film. Nobody saw it. What I want to know is why did some of the manufacturers print the numbers in a in colors that would look even lower contrast through a red window. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that before. That that could happen. It's probably limited by the number of colors available on the viewer press. Okay. Okay, it's, backing paper is always printed viewer so you can get you can put two black layers on the inside. That way if you have a pinhole you don't see it. Okay? But the number of colors and the number of presses available was very limited. You had to have a review to pay. Uh, I used to know the numbers, boy. To print backing paper in 120, you had to have a cylinder big enough. The, the film's 32 inches long. And then you got, you know, 12 to 18 inches on either end. Now you're talking about a pretty big gravure cylinder. And there were very few places that had gravure cylinders that big. Did and Eastman Kodak print their own backing paper? We did. did. We we did until the 80s, and we had environmental issues with the with the solvent I referred to, and I switched. I got stuck with changing the backing paper to an aqueous printing system, and we were able to do that. But we were under pressure to get rid of printing inks in Kodak Park because of environmental pressures on how much nasty stuff we were putting in the air. And we had enough nasty stuff in film emulsion. We didn't really want to, if we were going to cut out some, some EPA, if we were going to cut out things for the EPA, we'd rather cut out the printing process and send that to somebody else and not have to mod modify the film process. So we were under pressure to get rid of the solvents and it, Every five years, we had to make a change, and eventually, we had we had backing papers printed by uh, other packaging folks in in Europe and in the United States, and in and somewhere and other places. I can't really tell you the name. I know I can't. I, I probably can't. Shouldn't tell you the name <laughs> of the suppliers, but that that's why they had so much trouble. I never had any real trouble, but they had trouble after I retired. A lot of stuff about banking paper here. Um, I want to throw it off to maybe Alex Dietrich, Andrew Smith, Mike Litwin. Uh, you guys haven't had much of a chance to talk. Do you have any questions about film developing at home, expired film stocks, backing paper questions? I found it interesting bringing up the environmental concerns because I know a lot of people get more sensitive about the chemicals and the things that are in their house and variety and I know uh, I know all of us sign our own personal waivers <laughs> as we get into the chemicals but I'm interested to hear has anybody kind of really thought about that when they're going through their chemical selection because I've kind of heard some thoughts that Xtol is 
probably less harsh of all of them. I only just recently started wearing gloves when I developed, but um, yeah, I don't know what anybody else's thoughts are kind of on that safety and, and, and other concerns when going through your own development process. Well, I see Alex smiling, the other Alex. <laughs> Do you wear gloves when you're developing? No, I really yeah. should. Yeah, I don't either. But I don't. I, I'm on a septic tank for one thing. And uh, I, I, I try to limit what I did. The only chemical that I've ever used in a darkroom, besides some of the bleaches and, and uh, ferrous ionides and some of the more hazardous type materials, the, the worst one ever for me was always the Cibachrome bleach, which you really needed to neutralize with baking soda tablets before you put it down the drain. But it wasn't really that bad. Um, I really don't think, Robert, is there anything, I mean, we, we always used to have to keep a, a binder full of MSDS sheets around the lab, you know, at all times, to, just in case there was a chemical spill. But I don't recall there was really anything available over the counter that was terribly caustic or hazardous. You mentioned Cibachrome destructive dye is terrible. That, that's why that got taken off the market. It's, that's why we didn't sell a, a similar item. Do you remember there was a process, Agfachrome Speed, um, that they came out, Agfa came out with this process to, to uh, compete with Cibachrome. It was a one-step process, and you actually processed, you, you exposed a slide through the back of the material. So when you put your slide in the enlarger, yeah. you had to have it reversed. Uh, but the chemical, it was a one chemical, but that one chemical was about 90% lye. So if you were using it with your hands, you could develop it in a tray because it wasn't, it would develop to max and then it would stop. So it was, it was very simple, very easy to do. But if you didn't yeah. wear gloves after about five minutes, you'd look down and the ends of your fingers were disintegrated. I mean, you felt like you were soapy because the skin was just absolutely, skin was falling apart. Actiflex was a, was an instant photography thing. And the, the pH of the material, the solution you used was like 14. So it was essentially Drano. Uh, that that was taken off the market, not for environmental reasons, but because of the lawsuits with Polaroid. So that was nasty stuff. But D76 and DK50 and Fixer, I used to almost swim in that stuff. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you, a, I'll give you a very specific case that I know of. Ansel Adams was a black and white photographer, and Ansel, when he died, I actually went to his funeral. When he died. He asked that his organs be examined because he used he used rapid selenium toner, and I never saw Ansel wear gloves. I don't think he even owned a pair of gloves, and they found absolutely no indication that the rapid selenium toner did any danger, any harm to him whatsoever. And I got that from his wife, so it's pretty good information. The black and most of the black and white chemicals are pretty benign. There's lots of information, health and safety information. Uh, available from the manufacturers. And there's an organization I used to be on the board of called the Friends of Photography. And we published a big volume on all the photographic chemicals, but I can't remember the name of it. What I have heard is pyrocat could be dangerous and uh, ferrous cyanide toner or bleach rather. Potassium ferrous cyanide is bad stuff. Uh, a lot of a lot of the bleaches aren't too good, but the black and white chemicals, I, I'm not yeah. aware of anybody who ever really had a problem. I do wear gloves for the C41, um, although I don't 
I admit I don't ventilate all that well when I mix the stuff up and I get to the Blix part. Um, I sort of hold my breath while I'm stirring and and if my eyes start to water, then I look away, <laughs> take a breath. Show of hands, who who wears gloves while developing anything? Anybody? Well, color, Alex yeah. Dietrich, color, Mark Faulkner, Adam kind of. Color. Yeah, I probably should. I've gotten into the habit because of 3D printing with um, the resin printer. I'm so used to putting on gloves for that that I tend to do it with developing okay. as well now i think my lab will start getting a bit worried if i started turning up wearing gloves and handing him stuff so. <laughs> color i'd wear gloves i would wear gloves for so color would gloves black and white most of them as long as it's not ferrous cyanide should be pretty good mike i've got an idea i've got an idea for a quick lightning round all we've right got, go ahead we've, we've got a big panel here and i would just like to hear just like a, a one with no explanation what's your favorite expired film to shoot with and I'll go first. I'd probably say the, the, the Eastman 5220 XT or a close tie with Agfa Pan Professional 25 from the 1980s, 1990s. Call out each name, Anthony. Uh, well, let's go with you. Pan X. Theo? Uh, very current pan. Mark? Uh, Tri X. Alex? Um, Panatomic X um, tied with um, APX 25. Robert, would you shoot one? Or would you not mess with expired film? say tech pans okay howard uh plus x just because i had one roll and it turned out well a adam you gotta have something cool i actually think um i one of my favorites is actually ants go supreme oh vanya i would have to say uh fuji rap like the ostia 100 and that's 220 also oh and i shoot a lot of 220 so robert thank you so much because <laughs> the tape is amazing and i haven't had any issues <laughs> Alex, do you have one? Fuji Pro 160. Andrew. I don't really shoot a lot of expired film. Okay, and Mike. Uh, well, I haven't yet, but I'm just getting back in the film, and I will in a while. Vanya, I I'm going to throw back a previous question to you. You know, if someone's trying to get into expired film, like what what kind of recommendations would you give to somebody? I would say probably about the same. Like I think black and white is always more safe and then low speed iso and don't be scared of low iso honestly um it's it's not that scary um you can do it <laughs> you might have to drop things down uh when when i shoot even in the water sometimes 50 iso and i and i can do it just fine and i'm yeah. you know there's a lot of movement happening there's a lot of things happening so um be prepared to make mistakes and have failures and that's kind of part of it, but it makes it extra special when you get a roll of something extremely expired and it comes yeah. out and it's magical. It, it makes it all worth it. Yeah. All that labor is is like, oh, yep, this is why I did it. Vanya, are you going to have your Rolly Marine ready to go shoot manatees? I hope so. So I sent my Rolly, um, my Rolleflex to the Rolleflex like guy who like fixes cameras he actually uh his workshop is like two or three miles from my house so i felt like well what the hell i might as well take it there so he's getting it all ready to go i just need the Rolly marine to be pressure tested and then i'm ready to go so fingers crossed that hopefully i think he said they were pretty backed up i think he said two months and i dropped it off like 
a month and a half ago. So I'm hoping very soon. Yes, I would love to go. I'm coming over, by the way. <laughs> I'm coming over and I'm going to shoot manatees. That's, and that's you've, got a, you've got a housing for your Pentax 6.7 as well, right? Uh, it's a 6.45 N2 oh, okay. uh, Pentax. And that's what I shoot the 220 rolls in. Yeah, somebody somebody just loaned me a Pentax 6 by 7 and Ooh. somebody then loaned me an RV 6.7, which I'd never shot before. Oh my gosh, you're going to have so much fun. I and love I, my RV. At a chance firearm auction, I just blundered upon uh, like a, it was like, it was just unwrapped yesterday, uh, my Mia M645. So I feel like I need to start a YouTube channel because <laughs> I now have all of the requisite cameras that if you're going to do a YouTube channel, you, right, you, you have, have them. Um, but I'm still trying to wrap my head around, especially the Pentax 6.7. Uh, you know, people bag on me about my Kodak Metalist being a beast. That thing is insane. Yeah, and Paul's got one of my favorite cameras, which is the Super Iconta 531 4x5, which is one of the smallest roll cameras uh, with focusing, it's a focusing roll camera. It's just a work of art. It's such a fun camera to shoot. Um, but yeah, that I'm, I'm trying to get my head around the, the two Mamiya's and especially that six by seven is just five and a half pounds. Of oh, yeah. Stuff. <laughs> the Rolly Marine, I think is, um, I think 15 pounds or 20 pounds. It's just straight cast. Iron. It's cast iron. It's huge and heavy. And that's without the camera. Uh, once I get the camera back, I'll weigh it and make sure I put it on my story and see how much everything weighs. Nice. I'm, I'm basically going to end up at the bottom of the ocean. <laughs> well, it'll be, it'll <laughs> be neutral. It's got, yeah. it's got so much it's got so much space in it. I mean, it'll probably be positive. You'll probably end up having to tie off weights to it to get it neutral. Probably. Well, we've hit about we're up at the hour and a half mark. Um, we've gone, we've covered some really fantastic topics, home development, cold stand, backing paper, health issues. Uh, but I want to have a little bit of time maybe for a tiny bit of gas talk. Uh, Mike Litwin, um, did you have a question you wanted to ask? This is a Yamato mini electric 35 electro 35 there i have found very little about this camera on the internet it has no uh, you can't set the aperture the aperture is fixed at f4 i've sort of found that out it's not a range finder it's just scale focusing it has a view it has a um a meter window so what you do on the back it has a chart i thought the photographer who may have owned this because i got this in a camera store uh i thought maybe the the owner had put this on as himself but this is actually made like this it has hp3 on it no one has heard of hp3 here they've heard of hp what four or hp5 but this thing actually says hp3 um Deva Color, Ectochrome, Agva Color, Ansco, Supreme, Agva, CT, Plus X, Pan, Deva Pan, Super Anis Chrome, ISO Pan. And like this camera, from what I could tell, was made in two, made in 1961 to 1963. It's amazing shape, but there's so little about it. Well, I can tell you, I recognize that camera. Um, there were a lot of name variants of it. One of them was the Mansfield Skylark. Uh, I know Yamato or Yamato um, rebranded it for a bunch of different companies, but I always thought that meter was fake. I don't think that's a real meter. 
Is it? No, it's a real meter. It is real? Okay. It sets the shutter speed for the aperture. From what I understand, Okay. it meters the light and sets the shutter speed for this wow. for the aperture which is set okay. at f4 it's a 40 millimeter lens a okay, 40 so millimeter get... luma color all right it's it's a, it's a different beast Nate, now have you shot it, it yet? opens uh, i put a roll through it i mean i'm i put a roll of kodak gold through it because it it lists the asa speeds from 10 to 200 and then it has a number that you correspond, you set the shutter to the corresponding number. Like, I don't know if you can see this on the lens, but there's a little lever and that corresponds to the number on the back, on this back okay. panel. It's like a cheat sheet. Yeah, so I'm gonna yeah. wait to see when I get the film back All what right. it looks like. It opens like a, a Nikon F, you got lock, unlock, and then you just unlock the whole it. Back and bottom. And Yeah, the whole bottom comes off. Like, like so yeah yeah i've seen those from time to time but I, I guess i always dismissed it as a a cheapo kind of entry-level camera but if it's got some kind of primitive auto exposure that certainly suggests it's better than i probably gave it credit for well i'm gonna find out when i when All i right. get the yeah let us back. know let yeah. us know uh howard did you have a question uh yeah uh bridging film back to our uh, our favorite topic of old cameras uh wh what models of camera or brands are harsher in terms of uh, ch the potential to chew up your film. Um, I've had uh, some negative experiences with uh, uh, stereo realist, especially when it was cold. And I think one of my Voigtlanders uh, chewed up the film once and my uh, Raleigh 35, I believe, chewed up the film once. Well, I can tell you the one model camera that is harder on film than any other I've ever encountered in my life is the uh, Soviet KMZ Leningrad. The Leningrad used an automatic like film wind. It has like a drum. You attach the film to it. But the, each time you fire the shutter, that drum spins with the force of like a 10,000 RPM torque wrench or something. I don't even know. But I mean, it just shreds the shit out of film. I, I like you need like the thickest possible base film. Otherwise, that thing is just going to chew it up. Uh, Adam, you were kind of nodding your head there too. If yeah, you... I, I found that some of the Canons with the auto, with the auto advanced, like um, sometimes even the like the Canon FTB, depending upon the perforation shape of the of the film you're using, that that can be very unwieldy with certain film stocks, depending upon whether they have the elliptical 1866 perfs or whether they have the typical film perfs. Yeah. I vote for Miranda. I've lost a lot of film in Miranda cameras. <laughs> Miranda just kills you in every which way possible shredding film. Um, a camera that I really, really like, uh, but is bad on film is the Kodak 35, both the original scale focus model and the rangefinder. And the reason that camera is worse than others is the way that camera was designed the film transport is actually part of the shutter cocking process. So if the shutter is gummed up, which almost all of them are, it actually puts additional strain on the film because as you wind the camera, as the film passes over the sprocket shaft, the film is turning that shaft and that's actually what's cocking the shutter. So when you get that camera, unless it's been cleaned, 
and it has a smooth shutter, you're almost always going to shred your film on it. But if you can get one of those working, they are quite nice shooters. Uh, that may be why my, my Voigtlander chewed up the film, because it, it relies on, on the yeah. film turning mm -hmm. the sprocket to cock the... To, uh... I've seen other cameras that do that, too. I don't know why some companies did it that yeah. way, because to me, the, the whole point of the sprocket was supposed to be to maintain eight, not, uh, eight perforations per exposure yeah. it shouldn't have anything to do with cocking the shutter but apparently they maybe they thought they could have it do dual purpose yeah. or something the, the only kodak 35 i have is is the uh the signet 35 and that's actually yeah, beautifully that's, smooth that won't right that won't do it it's it's the earlier yeah the 30 1938 to 48 kodak 35 yeah well it's unfortunate about the miranda because i i just got one about a month ago so <laughs> Yeah, we, we seem to come back to Miranda so often. We were talking about it last two weeks ago with Mike on the phone. Um, but, you know, they're when they work, they're they're really nice. Anybody else have anything new that they got that they want to share? I know, Paul, you put up some stuff. You got some more contacts gear. Oh, yeah, I got, got a bunch tea. of contacts. I did. I got a T, a silver T with a T14. It's nice. But I got a pile of uh, twos, two A's, threes, and three A's. And I got this three, this three, and, and I finally figured out how you can tell the difference between a three and a three A. It's nothing but this little beveled side of the rangefinder. But anyway, uh, I got this one. It's got a, a Yena 50 millimeter sonar on it. And the lens has got a, a chunk out of the filter ring. And if I look at the lens, it looks like it's just hazy as can be. But if I look through the lens, it's perfect. And I've shot with it on the Sony using the Amadeo adapter, and it's perfect. I mean, the lens has got no, it's got great contrast. The sharpness is good. So I figure it just must be an uncoated lens. Yeah, it probably and is. What I'm seeing looks like haze, and it isn't haze, it's just a lack of coating. Paul, you sent me one of these uh, contacts mount sonars with a contacts uh, rear lens cap. Right. <laughs> a non-functioning body, which acts as a nice, put it on the shelf. Right, now, know, was that- lens cap. Was that an Oberkoken or was that a Yena lens? Yena. Okay. So this is I, the well, one you sent me. The aperture was completely frozen. It didn't oh, move at all. Okay. Okay. So it was stuck wide open and I took it completely apart and I was able to coerce it back into moving. So it's working again. Well, you just got another one from me too. You gave, well, I bought off of you your bought collapsible, one from me. the 2.8 from my contacts. Two eight. Okay. That was a 2.8. Okay. That was the, this is the sonar. You sold okay. me the Tessar 2.8 for my contacts one. Right. That's and from, from Paul, about two months ago, I picked up the uh, Zeiss Contessa 35. Yeah. I absolutely have fallen in love with that camera. You know, it's, it's often mentioned to be a, a sort of like a, a competitor with the, the, the Kodak Retina 3C. And uh, I just, I don't know. I've got, I've got a really nice 3C, but I absolutely have fallen in love with that Contessa. And you know, it focuses. It's the range finder patch is bright. Uh, I've just got nothing but great shots out off of it. Um, I mean, it's a little tight where you have to manually cock the shutter, and then when you go to uh, focus, you can uh, like if you focus it, then you go to cock. You can sometimes hit the focus ring, uh, yeah, and you have to refocus. But other than that, that camera is just like. I mean, I can imagine what it would be like to take it apart. It must be. A, you know a thousand pieces because it feels like a giant swiss watch it is i tried taking one apart and i, I regretted doing that it's got so much heft to it for its size right 
Mike Litwin's asking if any of it recommendations on getting the uh, Kodak 35 serviced. I honestly don't. It, it really isn't that complicated of a camera. So I would imagine that anybody that can CLA a, a camera probably would take it. I don't know that there's going to be anybody who would specialize in that particular model, but I've actually done it myself. It is doable by an amateur. So if I could do it, I would assume that any shot that takes on film cameras should have no problem cleaning it up and getting it going. But those Kodak 35s are nice shooters. The Zeiss Contessa 35, fantastic. You know, I mean, anything Zeiss ever touched, even the over-engineered goofy ones are, are going to give you great images. Oh, we, we can't have a show without talking about Leica of some sort. You know, we so can do that. <laughs> I, I did. I'll just, I'll just edit this part out. I did, I did actually pick up a Leica, but I must admit it's a bit of a cheat because it's a it's a Hannah Leica, so it's it's it's, it's effectively a um, a uh, Panasonic Lumix version. What's mm. interesting about this is, apart from the fact that it's a little digicam, is it shoots in sixteen uh, by nine format natively, and to me, who who oh. likes panos in some sense, is think that's absolutely marvelous little thing so i'm quite pleased about that but i do have one final film question before we do actually come off if that's okay oh, go ahead. um i i picked up a bulk roll of ectochrome edupe film uh recently my, my lab's got like a ton of it and they've been sort of selling yeah they're, they're starting to sell some of it off but um I, because i've had a long relationship with them i, I got a uh one very very cheap and i did try out one roll and i shot it at iso 6 um, it does look like it needs a blue filter to it. Um, is there anything else I should know about that film? Because it, it did pro process in E6 quite quite nicely, um, but it does have a very pinkish cast to it. Well, it's tungsten balanced film. So, yep, it's tungsten balanced. So you're going to want to use, uh, you know, an ADA filter, uh, which is going to take you down to effectively ASA 2. Okay. Go, go for a bright day. <laughs> It'll be... A gamma of about one, so it'll be kind of low contrast to what compared to other ectochrome films. It's made for, you know, duplicating transparencies. So it tries to have a gamma of about one. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to have a bit of fun with that because I got it quite cheap. It's just made of bulk loading it. I don't know if you know the name Greg Heisler, but he was in New York. He's a New York City photographer. He did a, we spooled up some 120 E dupe for him. And he did a shoot for one of the one of the fashion magazines just on e, using e-dupe, and it was a nice low contrast kind of moody image. So it's a low, okay. it's a low, low contrast technical. Okay, we're well, gonna have to um, get some samples from some of these different films. You know, Adam, give us some uh, uh, digital scans of some of those cold stand images you shot. Mm -hmm. um, we'll get some more of the tech pan shots with the uh, Poda. Uh, Anthony, th this episode probably has the least number of cameras we've talked about here, uh, but maybe we could make up for it by including a whole bunch of sample images. Or I can just put a bunch of random cameras in anyway. And <laughs> you know, nobody said the word Nikon in the whole show except for. Oh, Nikon. you just you just did. <laughs> Nikon never made film. <laughs> we'll talk about them next week. <laughs> Uh, Mike Litwin's asking about 110 film. Um, I never really had the best of luck. I know there's that Tiger film out there you can get. Um, does anybody have any advice for 110? Avoid it. Avoid it, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, I've shot in some of the, the nicer 110 cameras, and I, I don't ever get into it. I mean, the, 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 Lomo, the Lomo films as good as any. 
Yeah. You know, yeah. That, the FPP sells their cheap stuff uh, that was maybe Shanghai. It was some sort of Chinese 110. Uh, so you can get mm-hmm. fresh. Uh, and the, but other than that, the Lomo is pretty solid. Okay. Thank you, Cole. Yeah. yeah I, I'm reading the Nikon camera in America, 1946 to 1903. That's Wes Loder's book. He's been yeah. on the show. I've read it once and I'm reading it again. It's a nice book. Wes's book differs from Bob Rodoloni's book in that Bob's is like all about the stats and the different variations. Whereas Wes tells a little more of the story. It's, it, it reads more like, you know, something you could sit down and read cover to cover. Whereas Bob's very excellent book is more like, I want to know about this particular lens or body or something. And you go to that section and, and it has everything. Mark, I know you bought an autographed copy from him. I have a copy. I'm actually probably going to see him. Uh, Photorama Chicago show is this upcoming Sunday. Um, so I'll be up there. I'll see Vlad Kern. I'll see Hong. Uh, more than likely, I'll see um, a couple other people too. So those, those are great books to have. Anybody else have any last comments? Bring on the Nikons, because then I can okay. talk some more. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to come on the next the next time Bob's on, the other Bob's on the show. We got we have Robert Shanebook, Robert Rodoloni. Uh, we've had so many great guests. Alex, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a long time. You know, you have your own podcast, so uh, getting to see the behind the scenes of how we managed to pull this together. I, I think a lot of times, Paul, you admitted recently a confession that it was like episode 26 or 27 was the first one you actually listened to the edited version right yeah uh they they do sound quite a bit different so you guys get to see a little glimpse behind uh the curtain of of the wizard of oz uh on how these shows go but it's a lot of fun i'm glad you guys all came out uh vanya i I feel like there's so much more i want to talk to you about i hope you have a chance to come back uh, Adam, thank you for being on the show. I hope you guys got a little sight into um, just what he's got there. Um, Adam, you want to say real quick what the name of your uh, Etsy store is? It's just called Classic Film Shop. I was going to use like Analog Apocry, but it was used. So okay. It's just simply Classic Film Shop. I have it bookmarked, Adam. Awesome. <laughs> we'll have it linked in the on the show notes. Um, and if you guys have any questions, you know, Adam posts in the Vintage Camera Collectors group, you know, the Camerosity podcast group. So he's accessible. Alex Dietrich, uh, great to have you on the show. Andrew Smith, glad to have you back. Mike Litwin, uh, thanks for joining. Uh, Robert, as always, you know, and then uh, Mark, you know, you're you're a staple here too. Although I'm curious next time you're on what room of your house you're going to be in. <laughs> all right guys thank you so much you guys all have a great night and we'll uh, see you next time good night have a good one do not store photographic chemicals in pop bottles. I know two kids who died from that in Rochester. And people keep telling me it never happened. It was in the Buffalo Evening News, and I have a copy of the article, and I know the photographer, and I don't want to badmouth him. But he had some kids at his house, and they drank something that had cyanide in it. And two of them died, and the third one went to the hospital. So don't store in pop bottles.